Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with Metro Vancouver's seething gang war. 20 gang-related homicides in Metro this year, 20 more attempted killings. It prompted police to take the unusual step this week of outing targeted gangsters. On Monday, Vancouver police released the names and photos of six people they say are dangerous. Yesterday, BC Special Enforcement Unit released more names and photos of people they say are targeted gang members. On yesterday's show, I talked to Fiona Wilson, Deputy Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. I asked her, what should people do if they see one of these guys? So I would certainly suggest avoiding these individuals, but if they're doing anything that makes you uncomfortable or you feel like it's necessary for police to check in with these individuals, for example, if they're sitting on a patio at a restaurant, you can just call police and we will do that. Okay, there's been criticism of this strategy now. Could it backfire, trigger even more violence? And what about the privacy rights of the people who've been named here? Are the police going too far? Let's discuss now with my guest, Megan McDermott, Senior Staff Counsel with the BC Civil Liberties Association, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Megan, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Okay, can you explain your concerns here with what the cops are doing? Because you think the police are going too far, right? Yeah, I do. Um, yeah, um, so I work with the BCCLA. We... we we uh, defend and promote civil liberties, in, including privacy. And, I mean, really what, what we look at when governments do things is we look at if it's proportionate and, like, what the issue is, right? And, and in this particular um, context here, obviously, I mean, it's very alarming, um, the gang activity that's occurring. But <laughs> what we would ask to is, ask the police what evidence they have that this is going to help anything and also um, what evidence do they have that these um, people really are such a public safety threat. So it's just, it's so rare in our society um, to have, the, especially law enforcement, and we know when, when police say, when people are known to police, that's not really defined anywhere in law, but it it's come on, we all kind of understand that it means they don't have a good reputation and they're up to no good. So um, in this case, yeah. Well, well, isn't it obvious, though, that there's a public safety concern here? I mean, there's been 20 gang-related homicides so far this year and and 20 other attempts. There's people diving for cover on patios. Right. I don't know, though, it, it... What's the evidence that's showing these photos? First of all, do we know that these are accurate photos of these specific people? What evidence are they using to say that these really are, you know, at the top of hit lists of third parties? Um, and then how likely is it that people are actually going to be able to recognize people? Um, yeah. You know, if we are in public or on a patio, what's the expectation that we're going to be looking at these photos and looking at the people around us and see if we recognize any of them and then what, leave? Or ask right. them to be kicked out? 
Well, I guess the police are like, saying that if you see these guys, you should walk the other way, uh, just in case you get caught in the crossfire. I mean, if you take a look at the, some of the guys on this list, like you've got the Dollywall brothers, Burinder and Meninder, and the Vancouver Sun has reported that both of these guys have already been shot in the past. And there's another guy on there with the Hells Angels who was targeted by a hitman at YVR, and the hitman's gun jammed. So doesn't that make yeah. them a public safety risk? No, no, I, hmm. I, I don't think so. I, I mean, again, um, uh, I just because people might have been um, victims of, uh, of violence in the past. Again, we don't know what the evidence is. So there's a lot of yeah. trust here that we're putting in the police that they got this right. Um, and it seems to be more of a, a public relations thing that the police want to be seen as being proactive. Um, so, so these people are in our community, and and so what the message here is: stay away from these people. Um, I, I can't think of another time actually that police have done this. And I actually yeah. be really interested. In, has this ever really helped anybody in the past, or is it not just a public relations exercise? Okay, so on the concerns that you raise. In the Vancouver Sun this morning by the very fine reporter Kim Bolin there, who's just an awesome reporter, she's a frequent guest here on the show, she talked to one of the guys who's on this list, a guy named Harjeet Deo, who says he was shocked to see himself on this list. He says he's no longer in the gang life, and I guess he's gone straight, and he's trying to get his name off the list. He's got a lawyer working for him. Does that kind of illustrate your concerns? Yeah, but I mean, definitely his reputation at this point is completely, um, completely trashed, maybe even internationally. Um, and it's true, we've seen issues like this with, say, I, I don't know if listeners are familiar, but previously with, with these, oh gosh, kind of gang retaliatory uh, public shootings, there was a, a program put together called Bar Watch and Restaurant Watch um, yeah. to try to protect patrons and owners and operators, right? Because they they didn't want to have to get the gangsters out, so let's get the police and help them get out. But um, what happens in those programs, too, is that once you're associated with people or associated with a gang, it is so difficult to, um, to then get out of it. Um, to get out of that association from the perspective of, of law enforcement. So we've seen a lot of complaints against police where people, years later, um, they become professionals, they're out with families, they're out with um, business relations, and suddenly they're uh, in front of everybody, stopped and kicked out of a bar for trespass just because their name is now in the database is being involved. It sounds like this is ex- exactly what might have happened with one of the one of the people on the list. Um I'm not aware of his particular context, but but that's the thing, right? Like, what information and how how good is the information that's being used to put these faces out into the public? Okay, and that's what our concerns are, and and if it's proportionate to exposing these people and their reputations to the harm that now they they've been, you know, we're all talking are, about them now on the radio. Right. Yeah. What are the what are the legalities of this? I mean, are is what the police doing? Is this legal? for them to put out these names and photographs? I mean, they do this with dangerous sex offenders, right? Yeah. Yeah, they do. And and I think, so, 
do have privacy legislation that governs this, and I I think it's kind of questionable. Again, you need to be able to see the information you're relying on that they're relying on. So um, this is why we just kind of have to trust them. But um, there are some pretty big exceptions in our privacy laws for oh, things that are in the public interest. Um, it allows the government to release it. But, I mean, there are a lot of questions about how they even collected these photos, where they got the photos from. Um, sometimes the police can they'll collect them just from the Internet, um, social media. Um, and that can be questionable because they're not always, uh, well, well, one, it's like, what's the purpose of them collecting it? Like, they could hear this interview and then collect photos of me and put it in the database because they don't like me. But anyhow, they, they do do that. But then, I don't think they'll um, do that. There's issues. <laughs> No, but there's issues of mistaken identity, um, how how recent the photos are, if they've changed. Um, Let's say that they did get the wrong photo. I mean, sometimes I get, I have a very common name, and sometimes I get tagged online as people who live in other countries. So um, there can be just a lot of issues with the the veracity of the data itself that public entities collect. So where did they get this and how good is it? And then, yes, they put it out into the public sphere. I could definitely see, you know, if I was on that list or if they had um, my photo associated with it but a different name, I could see myself wanting um, to, you know, maybe file a lawsuit to try to, recover some of the damage to my reputation or, or at least get an apology or set things straight so that, you know, I'm not seen as this, like, threat to public safety for the rest of my life. Okay, so you think there's a danger that this could potentially backfire? I mean, you could have a hit on someone that could be a mistaken identity. And the police have already said this week that the photos may not be current. There may be changes in hair length or facial hair. So the police have already put that out. So do you think there's a danger of a mistaken identity? I think there's an issue of mistaken identity. Um, I, I'm not able to say for sure if it would cause a, a death or not, but yeah. um, I'm just afraid for that person, just how the public would treat them or future employers or existing employers and family members. I mean, um, like, like our reputation and our image counts for so much in this world. And to have, um, you know, one of the biggest police departments in Canada go so public with, like, outing you as a dangerous person that people should stay away from, um, it, it's just going to have a devastating impact. So, um, hmm. yeah, it, okay, it, well, it's just completely, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. well, I think a lot of people listening might say, well, you know the guys on this on this list are no angels you know and their reputations are are already bad yeah i understand that um that <laughs> that notion it's kind of uh it's kind of a punitive one cuz first of all we don't really know how bad all these people are um and remember that the police have said they're not wanted for any crimes right now yeah. um so they don't pose a, a danger because of their criminality. They're not breaking any laws. So they have a right to be anonymous the same way I do, um, just because they're involved in... If we take the police at the world, at their word, that they are involved in, I don't know, let's just say shady activities or criminal underworld stuff, we don't... Our laws don't have, like, second-class citizens like that. They treat us all the same. It's very, very clear that we all have the same rights to be anonymous and it's it only in very specific cases that that um, 
that our government can, I, you know, intrude on our privacy like this or share. It's just so unprecedented, really, especially for people who who aren't committing uh, a crime and aren't being investigated for something. But the danger, um, though, the danger, though, is an innocent person being caught in the crossfire. And it's amazing we haven't seen more of this. I mean, we've had lots of these were targeted hits that have been absolutely brazen taking place outside of shopping malls and YVR and skate parks in places where people are gathered mm-hmm. and families are gathered. We've heard lots of reports of people ducking for cover on patios as bullets are flying. You know, you got mm-hmm. 20 targeted killings and 20 more unsuccessful hits in in just since the start of the year. So I guess this is the police's concern is that there's a public safety override, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they definitely have used what they would call public safety override yeah. and the issue. And I know it's not a popular opinion, but it, it's a principled one. <laughs> and, it, and it's one that, you know, lawyers like me, you'll hear it from us is just we what have they met a certain threshold? Like, that's all. We're just having to trust them right now, and, and we don't right. know. And so if we, if we come from a place of fear and we just trust the police all the time, then we'll assume that, okay, this is a good thing. But, again, how effective is it? Like, I'm just not it, – it's just completely unclear that it's effective. And when you look at it that way, it's like it's not helping anybody. If anything, it's just going to – well, it ruins their reputations, and then it freaks everybody right out, and does it really – protect public safety like okay i just i i'm not sure it's really gonna it are people gonna be looking at their phones the whole time and then looking at people around them and being scared i just i don't know that it's gonna work i think um yeah i i know it's a really probably (laughs) um unpopular opinion to to try to um look out for these people's reputations, but just think they're, they really, we, we have a right to be anonymous. And so, I, I mean, if anything, if the police have this much information, I mean, doesn't that beg the question, wouldn't they have information about the people that want to kill them too? Why not release the photos of those people? How could they have this much information and release all these photos, but not the photos of the um, suspected assassins? Why not put them out there then? And and say that we have reason to believe that these people want to kill people. Well, wouldn't you have and the same? Wouldn't we, you have the same concerns if they did that? No, because if if there are people that you think are imminently going to commit a crime, I I think that you'd have grounds to arrest them or detain them or question them. Like you could probably these are innocent. They, this list of people are like, oh look, we think these people might be dead bodies in a week. Therefore, stay away from them. Right. Okay. Well, who's going to make them dead bodies? If you have that much information that they're at the top of a hit list, you must have some intelligence, right? You must have some information about who's put them at the top of a hit list. So, like, why are, why are we looking at the potential victims okay. here? I mean, wouldn't it be much more effective to be like, here are the guys with the guns, stay away from them? And at least it, it, in that case, they would have, like, been breaking a law, which is they're stalking people and trying to kill them. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about noisy cars, trucks, and motorcycles now. I hear a lot about this issue from listeners. This stuff just drives some people up the wall, especially trucks and cars and hot rods that have illegally modified engines that make them super loud. What about extra loud motorcycles? I got a buddy of mine who rides a Harley. It's a super loud bike. 
And he says he likes it that way. He says it's a safety issue. He likes his bike to be loud so other motor other motorists can know he's there. But again, sometimes motorcycles can be extra loud if they've got modified pipes put on them to make them louder. Did you know you can get a ticket for an excessively loud vehicle in British Columbia? 83 decibels for a normal light-duty car or truck. For a motorcycle, the maximum is 91 decibels. You go over this, you can get a ticket, 109 bucks, three penalty points on your driver's record. How do police enforce this, though? Police are not required to carry around sound meters to test how loud your vehicle is. Okay, but think about this now. Now, you've heard about photo radar, right? You've heard about red light cameras. What about noise cameras? Noise cameras. Yeah, they have these in the UK. They've tried them in some cities in Canada. This would be an automatic camera that's set up with a microphone. You drive by one of these things and your vehicle goes over the decibel limit. The camera would automatically take a photo of your vehicle, send you a ticket in the mail. Now, we talked about this on the show earlier this week with Spencer Chandra Herbert, the NDP MLA for Vancouver West End. He says he likes this idea. He's thinking, he's looking at this, these noise cameras. Have a listen to what he said to me here. I'm interested. You know, I, okay. I think there's a, there's a strong case to be made. But, you know, citizen enforcement, uh, public education, that goes part of the way. Dealing with the installation of the pieces, that goes part of the way. There's no one perfect solution here. Okay, they've tried this in other cities. Let's discuss now with my guest, Derek Luer, is a researcher for Sense BC, And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Derek, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. Now, we've talked in the past about photo radar. We've talked about red light cameras. We've talked about intersection speed cameras. What about noise cameras? That could be next. What do you think? Well, I'm going to say the position since NBC is against uh, automated enforcement of the other types. Uh, this is not something that got me excited. Uh, I honestly had never heard about it before until you contacted me, so I had to do my homework as well. But, you know, I've, I've never seen a uh, program or regulations or laws that the NDP didn't generally seem to like to add more to. So I'm not very surprised <laughs> about the, the, the direction that the NDP might be looking at going on something like this. Okay, but when it comes to noisy vehicles, I mean, I, I get emails from listeners all the time saying that they're battling bikers in the neighborhood, loud bikes, modified car engines, like people just gunning up and down the street, deliberately making a ton of racket. I mean, that's got to be annoying for people, right? Uh, well, hey, I, I live right on a main highway here on the island, and, uh, you know, this time of year I get to experience all the Harleys going by my house, and so I do understand where some people are coming from, but it's definitely not the uh, biggest priority on my list of complaints in life, that's for sure. Okay, now they've they've looked at this, they've done this in other jurisdictions, notably the United Kingdom. Um, what? How did it work out over there, do you know? Well, I think the UK is still testing them. I know they've issued uh, lots and lots of tickets. Um, the Edmonton pilot project does not look like it was much of a success. Uh, the pilot setup cost them over, over around $200,000 and netted the city about $100,000 in fines. And they also had problems with emergency vehicle sirens that were detected, doing most of the activations and then catching subsequent vehicles that were around at the time. So they took a lot of labor to try and filter out which cars were actually offending or being caught in the noises that were being generated by sirens. 
Okay, yeah, it was interesting what they did in Edmonton there. They actually tried like a pilot project with this because there had been lots of complaints about noisy vehicles in Edmonton. And yeah, I'm going to play a short clip here for you, Derek. This is uh, Don Iveson, who is the mayor of Edmonton. Now, you're going to hear him here. He's giving a speech, and then the speech is interrupted by a noisy vehicle passing by. And listen to what the mayor of Edmonton says here. So I'd like to encourage everyone to visit the new bridge and the trails and form those lasting memories. We're coming for you. <laughs> yeah, we're coming for you. We're coming to get you in Edmonton. Oh, that the... sounds great. I, I love, I love big, when Big Brother's coming for me. I think that sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> They're coming at you with the, uh, the noise cameras. But it, it was interesting that it was kind of funny how it backfired a bit in Edmonton because at one point they set up a like kind of a test or demonstration project for the public to sort of show the public how these cameras work. And as I understand it, you know, it was one of those ones where you drive by, you don't get a ticket, but there was a video screen that would show you the decibel level of your vehicle as you pass yeah, by. Yeah. And guess what? Yeah, ha- tell me, tell me what happened. Just, yeah. Well, I guess they were, they were uh, some of the people, some of the, the younger folk, I, I'm going to assume, we're trying to use that as their decibel meter to figure out how loud they were and to see who was the loudest. Yeah. So it actually generated some more noise than they anticipated. Yeah, people were going by and they were just gunning it because they wanted to see how high they how high they could get on the uh, the screen when they passed by. So <laughs> it made it it made it even worse. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. They shut it. They shut it down. Okay. What can you describe, Derek? Like your your general feelings and principle about these automated cameras like whether it's photo radar intersection speed cameras red light cameras now they're talking about noise cameras what is it in principle that concerns you about that this technology well i i, I first of all i i'm myself i'm kind of uh, against general uh, blanket oversight and get big brother surveillance states i you know the uk is not a place where I'd like to live, and they're one of the, the top countries in the world for surveillance. Um, but we kind of believe more in boots on the ground, having police on the ground, getting those drivers that, you know, there's usually other offenses that are occurring in those situations, such as running red lights or excessive speed through intersections and so forth. So, is, you know, are they drunk drivers? Are they impaired drivers? Are they licensed drivers? Or, you know, do they have valid insurance? And you don't get any of that with automated enforcement, you, you know, someone just gets a ticket in the mail. There's no other consequences in, in that. And you just, you can pay to play in that instance. Um, it's better to have the boots on the ground. And it's better, uh, obviously, to have uh, more education. And there's a lot of corporations that benefit from these programs. And I think that is one of the things that we kind of have to ask. Like that Edmonton project, you know, if some company got a, almost $200,000 for setting that program up. You know, what are the costs associated and who's benefiting at the end of the day? All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about noisy cars, trucks, and motorcycles. Are noise cameras the answer? My guest, Derek Lure, is Sense BC. Let's go right to your phone calls here now and see what you think. Uh, Robin on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Yeah, what about at the manufacturer's level, the GMs and the Hondas and so on, the manufacture these noisy cars and things? And anybody who caught, you know, who, um, tries to put something on to make it noisy, yeah. they can, you know, the police can catch them. Why can't they do it that way? Well, there was, we did discuss that earlier this week on the show. Thanks a lot for the call. For some people who think that 
you should have a tougher crackdown on people who put illegal modifications on vehicles because right now that's it's technically legal to put uh, new pipes on your bike for example but then it becomes illegal once you hit the street and you're exceeding the maximum <laughs> decibel level so this is what happens but and i hear from guy derek i hear from motorcycle dri- riders all the time who tell me like look they like loud pipes on their bike because they think it's a safety issue. They want people to know they're there. They want people to hear them coming. Do you think that's legit? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, you know, as a brand new motorcycle rider who's still to take his final road test, mm. uh, I don't drive a noisy bike, and I live on a highway, like I told you. And I, the Harleys, when they go by with big pipes, I get it. And I got a friend that's got a loud Harley. Um, I understand what you're saying. I don't know what the science is behind it. I know Spencer said that this, there was no scientific evidence on that. But I can tell you, I can sure hear those Harleys coming from a distance before they even pass my house. So, you know, I'm going to say anecdotally, it seems to make sense for their safety. Okay, let's go to Bernie on the line of mission. Hey, Bernie. Thanks for taking my call, Mike. Um, Sure. First of all, uh, full disclosure, I rode a motorcycle for many, many years. Um, Second of all, I'd just like to say I'm very disappointed in someone who would try to turn excessive noise into a political issue. It's not. Mm. On Sundays where I work, um, there's a stop sign right outside the business, and there is a regular uh, group of individuals on those kinds of motorcycles that make noise that is beyond description. And I'm inside a concrete building, and when they crack it leaving the stop sign, it's not a little bit uncomfortable. It is painfully loud. Mm. So I don't really see, at that point in time, there's nobody... Uh, no other vehicles are any danger to the individual. The, the noise of their vehicle is not saving them from anything. But it sure is creating a problem for people like me. The last thing I would say is if I lived out on a highway and all I'm putting up with is motorcycles cruising by at cruising speed, that's not the same loud volume that occurs when they crack it. Yeah. You know, taken off or from a stop sign or when they're trying to pass someone, huge yeah. difference in the volume there. Thank do you. you. See, do you see any police enforcement on that? In your neighborhood? No, sir. Yeah. No, sir. Okay, Bernie, thanks for the call. Let's go to George and Ladner. Hey, George. Good morning, and thank you Hi. for this call. Sure. Uh, my problem here in Ladner Trunk Road and Highway 17 is every 9 p.m. and on, there seems to be a, a gang of Harleys or whatever cars you have that has been speeding up for the last little while. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what the Delta police are doing about it. They have completely ignored the system and the rule of law. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, I know that police have the ability to enforce this. Like, if you do have an excessively noisy vehicle, they can slap you with a ticket, 109 bucks. The police are not required to carry decibel meters on them to measure the sound of these vehicles and maybe that's the problem and i think in many cases probably police have got bigger fish to fry as well with lots of other things going on let's go to uh scott in maple ridge hey scott hey mike you know yeah. uh, these sense guys the sense bc guy i had a lot of time for them when they fired up over photo radar which was clearly in fishing holes and didn't make anybody safer just a revenue generator but yeah. you know intersection ca- intersections are the most dangerous place in the world when you're driving and intersection cameras clearly work. They make people think, 
and uh, including myself, they make me extra cautious in intersections. So that's the thing. You know, and if I lived in the canyons of Vancouver and I had these morons with their chopped Harleys driving, if they don't feel safe on their Harleys, then maybe they shouldn't be riding Harleys. You know, I, I just hear this nonsense over and over again. I drove motorcycles for years, and, and I, if, you drive, if you don't drive like a jerk and you pay attention, you're right. safe. And, hey. and that's, the, yeah. So, I, okay. yeah, go ahead. Make, put them out. Put those things out there. Get them. Okay, Scott. Thanks a lot for the call. Well, Derek, I remember when they had photo radar, those photo radar vans in British Columbia, and I was really opposed to them because I, I thought it was unfair. I think it was like a fishing hole type of exercise by the police. Quite often they would set up at the bottom of a hill and just nail people one after the other with photo radar tickets. You know, I think it's interesting the caller comparing that to an intersection speed camera, which is different because, I mean, it's true, right, that most of the accidents most dangerous accidents, fatal accidents, do happen at intersections. Is that correct? Yeah, that that is true. But yeah. I, it's also the contributing factors in their intersections are also uh, alcohol is a primary contributing factor to those fatal collisions. But your caller might be interested to know that when the province announced their red light cameras uh, or the speed cameras or photo radar 2.0, as we've called it, um, they didn't actually have any data to support those being high crash intersections with speed being the speed contributing factor. And again, if you don't have the boots on the ground and you're not addressing the, uh, the impaired driver or the unlicensed driver that's behind the wheel during those activities, you've done nothing other than, as I said before, well, initiated they, the pay-to-play. Didn't they set up the cameras, though, at intersections that had high crash rates? They set them up at intersections that had high crash rates, but not. Yeah. they didn't break it down and go, what was the cause of the crashes at those intersections? Okay, Annette on the line in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Okay, so motorbikes and cars pass by in a moment, but garden leaf dust blowers go <laughs> on for 10 to 15 minutes and longer. Yeah. We have to put up with that noise in our environment, creating dust and dirt everywhere. Oh, no, I hear you. Thank you, Annette, for that. Yeah, I, I'm sure that there are a lot of people nodding in agreement with you on that one. Steve and Delta. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Hey, Good. Remember, doc, remember Dr. John Blatherwick? Sure, he was yeah. A health officer. Yeah, well, he was a health officer for Vancouver, and he said that the number one health hazard for Vancouverites was car alarms. Now, really? I, I kind of I got this right up there with, with car alarms. And, and I got buddies that ride, and I tell you, the number one thing is, what does that thing sound like? And um, they'll go back and they'll modify the pipes, they'll buy all the accessories, to, to make them louder, more throaty, and it's it's just really unnecessary. We, but you know the the, the last caller, Annette, she she's got a point there too yeah. about the leaf blowers and the gas operated weed whackers and all those sorts of things. Yeah, they're they're the same kind of thing. Yeah, there was a lot. There's a lot of annoying noise. Steve, thanks a lot for the call. Appreciate it. Thanks for everyone who called on the open line. And Derek, thank you for being a guest on the show today. Uh, thanks very much, Mike. I, I would just like to add that you know. I think it's called living in the city. Cities never yeah. sleep. Um, it seems like a big city problem. Okay. But, you know, let's put safety ahead of uh, inconveniences. And we got lots of big fish to fry in this world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about drinking and parks and plazas and Metro Vancouver now. The great city of New Westminster, now the latest to allow drinking in parks. Public consumption of alcohol will be allowed in seven city parks. This summer, New West joins other municipalities with similar programs. North Vancouver, Port Coquitlam, other cities where you can crack a cold one in a local park. What about in the city of Vancouver? Well, look what Vancouver's doing. They always got to do it different. Vancouver City Council has voted to allow public drinking at three plazas in the city. <laughs> I, I just think it's weird. Like what, People want to have a drink in a park. Vancouver's setting up public plazas where you can drink. Okay, well, let's get into this now. My guest is New West City Councillor Patrick Johnston. Hi, Patrick. Oh, Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you tell me uh, why City Council has decided to allow public drinking in these parks this summer? Well, I mean, I think last summer we all saw a huge increase in the number of people using parks for picnicking and gathering within their bubbles. Uh, you know, we didn't have street festivals like we usually would. Events got cut right. back and public health orders changed how we use restaurants and pubs. So we wanted to, uh, we saw people using parks and we saw a good program in North Van and Poco, which were both successful. So we thought we'd try it out this year. Okay, so new seven parks in New West where yep. you'll be allowed to have a beer or a glass of wine. Do you? Ha- is it only allowed in certain parts of those parks or can it, can it be anywhere in those parks yeah exactly yeah we have seven parks we picked out of our whatever it is 25 or more parks in the city we wanted to pick ones that had public washrooms available and places where there were good picnic spaces um and you know sort of one in every neighborhood but we also recognize that you know in respect that some people in our community don't necessarily want to be around alcohol use right so we wanted yeah. to try to be thoughtful about that and assure that their services in all the parks are still available to everybody so it's so we did a limited area, you know, which there's an area in each of those seven parks where you can go and use, go have a drink if you wish. Okay, you mentioned that some other municipalities have uh, had similar programs, notably North Vancouver and Port Coquitlam. I'm sure you were watching those municipalities closely here before you decided to do something similar. How you mentioned that it's been successful in those other cities? Yeah, I mean, we've obviously been observing it, and our staff have been in, in talking to their staff about, uh, you know, ways they managed any, any trouble, if there was trouble. And it turns out the programs really went really well. They were positive. The business community liked them. The residents liked them. I mean, I went down to Waterfront Park in North Van last weekend, actually, and just to see so many people out there sharing that green space. There were people uh, picnicking in social distance groups. Some of them had beer, some of them didn't, right? Uh, it didn't really yeah. change how, how people are using the park, except that more people were using the park. It was great to see. Okay, have you received any complaints or opposition to this? Uh, I mean, there are people who are concerned about this. and people. I mean, yeah. uh, it's interesting. People always say, well, there already is a bunch of drinking in park, and there are already troubles you know, attached to drinking in parks. And I don't think, you know, I don't think that's going to change. I think we still have the same regulations about drinking age and about people being drunk and disorderly and stuff, and we'll still enforce yeah. those. Um, but I don't, but we've only just begun. I mean, it, this was obviously, was, was passed on Monday, so I think yesterday was our first day, and I'll tell you, we haven't had any chaos yet. Okay. <laughs> okay. Do you think uh, the, the good people of New West are uh, able to handle this? Are they adult enough to kind of have a have a, a you know a cold one in the park without mayhem you know we we have 
we get a hundred a hundred years later, we still in Canada are holding on to some of the vestiges of prohibition, right? <laughs> I think Germans and Singaporeans simply don't understand it when they see it, but um, you know, community standards change over time. But I think that the experience, again, we've seen in in other cities is that that you know we can handle this as a society, and yeah. and uh, you know it's probably time for us to try this out, and we'll find out. I guess this is a pilot program, and if and we will adapt at the end of the year if if things if we have to. Okay, speaking of New West City Councillor Patrick Johnson, you mentioned it's a pilot program, so it's it's temporary, right? Is it just for this summer only? Yeah, the idea is we've created a bylaw, so it is it is meant to be a pilot, and we'll be tracking it to see if any problems crop up, and that gives us the ability in the fall to um, to basically make any adjustments if we want to reevaluate the program next year. Right. Okay. What do you think about what's going on in the city of? Vancouver, where I don't think you can drink in a park in Vancouver, but they're setting up these public plazas in the city where you can have a, have one. You, you know, Vancouver Vancouver has its own charter, and that makes it yeah. unlike any other city in BC. You know, it has a different uh, different types of regulations between the parks and, and other public spaces. Sometimes that makes it easier in Vancouver for them to get move things faster, and sometimes it makes things more complicated for Vancouver. So um, I think I've heard from basically everybody in Vancouver, they're interested in doing this. So I think it's just a matter of them getting through the hoops and, and making it work. Yeah, so Vancouver City Council has voted to allow public drinking at three spots in the city. So those are Camby Street and 17th Avenue, Fraser and 27th Avenue, and 800 Robson Street, a fourth possible site on Maple Street and West 4th Avenue also being studied. Public drinking will be allowed in these spots starting May 31st to October 11th between the hours of 11 a.m. and 9 p.m. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think people, people, don't people just want to have a cold beer in the park? Like, I don't know why you'd set up a public plaza for drinking. Like, why don't you just let people have a beer in the park? Yeah, again, I think it's Vancouver. I think it's a conversation between... Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a conversation between what has the city has authority over and what the parks board has, has authority over. So, um, yeah, yeah it, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, but, but I'm a city councilor in the West. We don't, we don't have that situation. Right. Right. What do you say to, um, like when people hear this debate about whether you should be able to have a beer or a glass of wine in a park, hasn't that just been going on forever anyway? Like, you know, people will, you know, I mean, I, I will admit I've been to a, like some family picnics in some Vancouver parks where, guess what? There was like a couple of beers in the cooler and you just pour the beer into a plastic cup and just be discreet. I mean, hasn't yeah. that just been going on forever? I don't know. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny that rumor, Mike. Uh, <laughs> but I think I think you're right. I think that we. Um, I, I think that there's there, there might be an equity issue to discussing here if you want to go down that path around who who is being enforced when it comes to to drinking in public places like that. And um, I think that uh, I, some people really some people don't want to be around alcohol in parks. And I, I can understand that. Some people aren't comfortable yeah. with that. I think we just need. It's a matter of education, and it's a matter of I hate to say it, meeting people where they are and, and you know, governance requires us to, to understand people's concerns and try to address them as best we can. Right, right. You mentioned that because of the pandemic, there's been a lot of festivals, summer festivals in New Westminster, sadly cancelled, and we've seen that happening everywhere. Is that is that why the city's doing this right now? Like, is this a pandemic thing? Um, I think the, pa- well, first of all, I think it's happening now because, um, 
partly because the regulations changed provincially that allowed us this, allowed this to happen starting last year. Mm. So it's not something we could have done five years ago. Um, I think that maybe there's, there's, it's maybe not a direct result of the pandemic, but it is, I think, a secondary result. I think that we saw that people have changed how they're using public spaces through the pandemic, and that maybe put this more on the radar. People who wanted to meet with their friends and have have a cocktail while they're doing it maybe would have gone yeah. into a pub or would have gone to a restaurant where now that isn't available to them. So, you know, they would have gone to a beer garden even in one of our festivals, and that's just not available to them. Right. So. I think right. it, it drew attention to this, but I don't think it was necessarily the driver of it. Will there be any stepped-up enforcement of this in these particular parks? Like, will police be checking it out, make sure there's no underage drinking going on or drunk driving? Um, you know, I think that enforcement already exists. I think that okay. um, I think that uh, the police board obviously were, were consulted on this, and our bylaws officers were consulted on this. I think that type of enforcement already happens in parks, and you know, and you know, people do consume alcohol in the city, in restaurants, in pubs, in their homes. So I don't think it makes a big change to that. Um, but I think that uh, there's always an increase in, in uh, presence and enforcement over the summer as people right. use the parks more. Are you hearing from any other lower mainland municipalities sort of watching what New West is doing now and North Van and Port Coquitlam? Or, like, are other municipalities looking at doing similar, to your knowledge? Yeah, I don't think we're the leaders on this. I think, again, everyone's been watching North Dan and Poco. And yeah. I know that uh, I think the municipality of Delta is is uh, exploring this this year, is starting a pilot this year. I think they're expanding into the district of North Vancouver. Um, I haven't been watching that closely about who's coming after us, but I do think there are more municipalities doing it. Okay, very interesting. We're watching it closely. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the drug wars that have ravaged Mexico now, the ultra-violent cartels that have carved the country up, battling each other, fighting the government and law enforcement. Thousands and thousands of people have died as a result. Have you seen the show Narcos? Especially Narcos Mexico, great show. My next guest has seen that show up close and personal in real life. Ed Calderon. Ed is a former police officer in Mexico working in counter-narcotics, organized crime, and public safety in some of the most dangerous parts of the country. He's now a U.S.-based security expert and consultant, and he travels around North America talking about his his work. And I'm very pleased and honored to welcome him to the show. Ed, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, uh, Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, you bet. It's my pleasure to have you here. Hey, Ed, let's start by talking about your background in law enforcement in, in Mexico. Can you tell me about, you know, you grew up in Mexico and you became a police officer there, right? Yeah, I, I grew up on the I grew up in the border town of Tijuana. Uh, and, you know, Tijuana's uh, fame precedes it probably uh, uh, with some of your listeners. Uh, pretty rowdy town. Grew up there. Uh, decided to try and go into medicine, uh, study, uh, uh, go for a medical career, career. But after 9-11, the economy went into the toilet and uh, the only uh, people employing young uh, uh, males were, were the cartels or the uh, police forces. So I uh, opted out and went uh, into the line of uh, police work. Right. What year did you become a cop? At 2004. Uh, right at the beginning of the, the like the ultra violent version of the cartels that are, are right. now kind of prevalent down there. Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, like two thousand and four. Like I remember, in those days, it seemed like Mexico's reputation for drugs way back in the day was well, you'd see a lot of um, 
low quality marijuana come out of Mexico, but then everything everything changed, right, with the cartels taking over. So when when did that when did the cartels really start to ramp up their power? Early, early, late '90s, early 2000s, you you saw a, a diversification of cartel uh, activities as far as them not only transporting drugs into the United States, but also uh, fostering giant drug markets within Mexico to fuel their 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 their, uh, their, their you know coffers, uh, extortion. Uh, abduction for ransom, uh, going into legitimate business, um, uh, getting into politics by supporting one candidate and killing the other. Uh, early early 2000s, uh, late 90s is when you saw the cartel turn into an entity that is currently con- in control of vast territories in Mexico. All right. What was it like to be in law enforcement at that time and battle and going up against these cartels? Uh, <laughs> It was, uh, you know, uh, we all of us that went in went in with the, uh, you know, with uh, good intentions. And once you got in, you you saw that the uh, one of my old friends told me to always wear, uh, always wear my back plate of armor, uh, even though it was heavy, because you never know who's going to shoot you in the back. Uh, corruption was rampant all throughout the uh, police forces as well, uh, so it was really, you know. If you're paranoid, it's not a it's not a job you want to go into. Basically, yeah. dangerous. Did you, uh, did you get? Did you ever get into any really hairy situations where your life was in danger? Uh, I mean, every day uh, yeah. there, there were there were uh, there were rewards uh, for our badges if, if if they they killed us. There was a there was a full on hunt of agents uh, during my time active. So uh, it was every day. Um, not just uh, from the outside, but also from the inside. Uh, not trusting the people that you work with, uh, or even or other other uh, uh, government groups that we were working with. Uh, people have to realize that in some places in in, in Mexico, uh, the cartels will will work with the military, and the and the police will work with another rival cartel, while another other cartel will work with the state police. So it's a free for all in some places. Um, Amazing. I'm speaking to Ed Calderon. He's a former Mexican police officer. He is a security specialist talking about the drug cartels in, in Mexico. As we saw, Ed, as you started to see the rise in power of these cartels, and people may have heard of the Sinaloa cartel, and people may have heard of El Chapo, who is now in prison in the United States. Is, is that Sinaloa cartel, is that still the most powerful cartel in Mexico? It's it's one of the dominant cartels in Mexico only because of it only because it holds control over some major drug routes to the United States, um, but it's quickly being uh, overtaken by another up and coming cartel called the New Generation Cartel, uh, Cartel yeah. de Jalisco de Nueva Generación, which it, which uh, it 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 uh, it's grown leaps and bounds in influence with uh, its tentacles reaching all the way to Australia and Canada. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it was one of the only cartels that basically grew exponentially during the COVID epidemic in size and power, uh, mostly because of its access to Pacific, uh, uh, Pacific side ports in, Me- in Mexico, allowing them to get precursors and, uh, and things like fentanyl from China, uh, yeah. 
to 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 still kind of pump the pump the the drugs into the into the U.S. Uh, drug market. Right. Uh, that's the cartel everybody's looking at now, as far as the the one that's up and coming. It's probably going to overtake the Sinaloa cartel within uh, a decade. I think one of the things the listeners should should know and understand is the scale and power of these cartels, because we're talking like, aren't they more like, almost like paramilitary organizations? I mean, they've got unbelievable weapons they've got military equipment they've got drones i mean they're they're just armed to the teeth correct uh, yeah n- not just uh not just armed to the teeth uh one one thing that people miss you know it seems very scary when you see a guy holding a 50 cal uh 50 cal barrett on top of an armored vehicle somewhere in mexico saying that you know long live the the scene law cartel uh, but uh, the, their 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 influence and their power reaches so much farther. You you have to realize that some of these cartels have not only paid for immigration policies, poli- uh, immigration processes for people, they've also paid for careers. They they have doctors, lawyers, they have people in high level politics that are completely within their uh, pockets. Um, the the cartel's true weapons are its uh, are its uh, size and influence. That's that's the true weapon of the cartel. That's what people should be afraid of. Yeah. Um, they they have an ability to project their influence and power internationally across some of the most secure borders in the world. Uh, people were worried about uh, the you know uh, Al Qaeda after nine eleven. Uh, the, the 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 scope and power and the reach of some of these people is beyond anything uh, uh, that came from that phenomenon. How far? Does the power and reach of these cartels extend in Mexico? Like, I personally l- love Mexico. I love visiting there. Um, but as a, as a tourist, though, you know, like I go to the most popular, like Puerto Vallarta or Cabo, where, and a lot of British Colombians love visiting Mexico. Uh, do the cartels, you know, I always feel safe when I'm there, though. Do the cartels have influence yeah. even in the tourist regions? Uh, you know, it, a, a thing you will never hear anybody say, and I'll say it as a former member of law enforcement in Mexico, the reason you feel safe in some of these places is because cartels deem it to be safe or stay safe. Uh, certain cartel groups actually have uh, business interest in some of the hotels in the area, and they also have paid protection plans with some of the business owners in the area. So the reason it's safe is because, you know, it's owned, basically. It's paid for. You mean You mean safe. like... You mean like the cartels own the resorts? I mean like the cartels have controlling interest in some of these resorts, and yeah. they get paid to keep the area safe. That's right. what I mean. And you, you, there, was a re- there was recently a high-level assassination of a former governor in, uh, in a resort uh, city and town in Mexico. And, the, and, and people were like, wow, this never happens here, you know? And the only reason something like that would happen is if a rival cartel wants to move into a territory like this resort town and basically make a statement that people aren't safe there anymore, uh, that they debilitate the reputation and the power of the cartel that's in control there. So okay. that gives you an idea about how some, how some of these things work. The government in Mexico is not in control. All right, welcome back to the show. More of my conversation now with Ed Calderon. Ed is a former police officer in Mexico. He is now a security specialist. He's one of the great experts in the world on uh, the Mexican drug cartels. Hey, Ed, when you take a look at the situation on the ground in Mexico right now and the battle against these these cartels, 
What do you think about the approach here of the the current Mexican government and particularly the uh, the current president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador? Uh, his uh, his uh, his his anti cartel uh, uh, policies have been uh, horrible. Uh, it's, it, we are currently even with the COVID epidemic, last year was the most lethal year to be a, a Mexican citizen in the history of Mexico as a country. Um, things are getting worse. Uh, we saw two years ago the defeat of the Mexican military by cartel forces in the famous Culiacanazo in Sinaloa by the uh, the sons of El Chapo, which, uh, that basically laid siege to a city and made the army retreat. So uh as far as uh as far as uh it's uh as far as, as it's the current administration's uh, ability to control and contain that's not been the case it's it's probably been one of the worst uh worst administrations uh to have handled the the drug war in, in the past few years since it started isn't he the guy who came up with the line uh hugs not bullets uh, abrazos no balazos was his policy when he was in campaigning basically meaning yeah hugs not bullets yeah. Uh, and then and then his plan to basically give amnesty to cartels. Um, if that is not a red flag to most people, I don't know what is. But it's uh, this has been one of the worst uh, administrations. What do you think the answer is, Ed, to this uh, this tragic situation that we have in the in the country right now? I mean, we've seen a war on drugs that hasn't really been effective. You've seen sort of more a softer approach with the current government. Doesn't seem to have worked either. What is the answer in your mind? Uh, what mainly is that the international community has to realize that Mexico is uh, Mexican. The Mexican government is a failed. It's a failed government right now. It's a failed state that doesn't hold control over mass amounts of its territory or its borders. Uh, it's a country in crisis. It's a country that's not fighting against, uh, a, a, a war against criminal uh, groups. They, these are paramilitary narco insurgencies of a yeah. level and kind that. These these are groups that uh, have uh, no fly zones over their territories because they'll they'll knock down a government uh, air vehicle. These are these are these are groups that are now weaponizing drones with explosives and attacking military and police forces directly. These are not common criminals. Uh, This is an insurgency. Mexico is going through an insurgency with multiple fronts and the international community has to recognize that. It's not a war on drugs. It's a war in Mexico going on right now. Hey, Ed, we've got uh, gang conflicts going on here in Vancouver. There are lots of big drug problems here in this in our city. Like in many North American cities, there's an overdose crisis. Do you think that the Mexican drug cartels are in, in any way connected to the situations we see in Canada? Uh, you know, specifically, uh, generally, yeah. There are things. There are things that happen. Usually, they're an indicator of control. Now, if you in Vancouver have experienced uh, members of uh, the media being targeted specifically for assassination by drug gangs or uh, gangs that are moving drugs in the environment, then that is a red flag. And I think you already had something like that happen. If you're experiencing uh, motorcycle gangs and uh, low-level street criminals being tar- that were distributing drugs being targeted for assassination. Then you, that's a red flag, and I think you've already passed that as well. Um, 
there are a bunch of states on your on your southern border in the United States that are becoming very permissive when it comes to the drugs that are being uh, being, being used there. Uh, in some places, it's actually being completely decriminalized. Uh, all of these all of these 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 uh, states are basically going to become a mecca for just direct criminal uh, organizations going there and, and taking control. Uh, El Chapo, during his uh, trial, expressed uh, and, and some of the people that testified again uh, against him uh, stated openly that he had a vast uh, empire in Canada as far as drug uh, putting drugs into Canada all the way from uh, Central and South America. Uh, you know, the, the problem isn't coming. The problem is already there, and it's been there for a while. Um, it, do, you it's, think, uh, it's, it, do you think we just got not, we have a minute and a half left here? Ed. Do you think that uh, that at some point there, the United States may intervene in Mexico? Like I know there was talk under the Trump administration of uh, naming the cartels as like terrorist organizations. Do you think the United States is maybe at some point may intervene in this situation? It's got a minute. Uh, Mexico, yeah, Mexico just discovered it had one of the largest deposits of mineable lithium on the planet underneath underneath its uh, soil. So that is going to add fuel to the fire as far as the drug war. And I think if the U.S. decides to intervene in Mexico, it's probably going to be related to minerals, not because of the drug war. And I think that's what's coming. Yeah. Just in the minute we got left, the corruption in Mexico, like how pervasive is that? Uh, we have the former head of national security basically being arrested, of the general being arrested by the U.S., and then let go to face charges in Mexico, and then as soon as he lands, he gets uh, escorted to his house. You know? Yeah. yeah. If that is not a sign of how corrupt things are in Mexico at high, level, uh, at high levels, even, even at the most trusted uh, parts of the government, uh, which is the Mexican military, then I don't know. I don't know what is. You know, it's it's Ed, it's at, from the top down. Ed, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I, I hope there's a solution somewhere in the future, and I, I greatly appreciate you being a guest on the show today. Thank you. Well, thank you.